Now, I don't wish to alarm you, but I want you to imagine for a moment that this building is under attack and we have to evacuate it as quickly as possible. Now, that might seem a slightly outlandish thing to imagine in leafy Fullwood this Sunday morning, but of course there are many parts of the world where that's just one of the risks of going to church. Anyway, let's imagine that we too this morning are under a violent attack Uh, But from up here, I can see more than you can. And I say to you, please don't go through the north exit. Don't go through that exit over there. Uh, You're almost certainly going to die, I can see, if you go through that exit. Please exit calmly through the south exit. And uh, you are sure to be safe. And even if you find making decisions tricky... Uh, that's not a particularly hard one, is it? Um, you know, don't rush me. Don't rush me. I think I'll go go for the south one. Something like that. But let's let's make the let's make the challenge slightly uh, more difficult. Let's suppose that from where you're where, from where you're sitting, it looks like the north exit is perfectly clear. There's nothing outside. No problems at all. It looks like the south exit is consumed with flames, and there's host- there are hostile-looking figures lurking in the smoke. Now it's a little harder for you, isn't it? Now you have to decide whether I've got it right. Now, you, now I've got a, a job to persuade you. To persuade you to go the right way, despite the apparent risks. Okay, that might seem an odd thing to think about this morning, but I want to suggest to you this morning that that kind of difficult decision about which path is going to lead to life and which path is going to lead to death lies at the heart of all human experience across history. And therefore, not surprisingly, it's a decision that's addressed right across the Bible. You might remember that towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, he says, Enter through the narrow gates, for wide is the gate and broad, is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. There is again the same decision, path between life and death. In the middle of the Bible, in the book of Proverbs, Solomon sets out the challenging way of wisdom, which again is the way that leads to life, the only way that leads to life, in contrast to the way that's much more natural to us, the way of folly. And here in the book of Deuteronomy, it's the same. The people of God are at a point of decision. You'll remember from previous weeks that um, in Deuteronomy, Moses is preaching to the people at the edge of the promised land, encouraging them to seize it and to pursue a radical relationship with the Lord their God. Because that alone, Moses says, is the way of life. Moses puts it like this towards the end of the book. He says, as he sort of concludes everything, I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now, choose life. But just like me trying to persuade you to go through the flames and perils of the, of the South Exit, Moses has got a job to do. He's got to persuade the people that it really is worth going the way he says, despite all the apparent dangers and difficulties. Now, having that in mind, as we look at these early chapters of the book, is going to help us very much to work out what's going on. Because what seems to be going on is this. Moses is reminding the people of God what happened when they faced this same decision in the past. 
He's already reminded them what happened 40 years ago when the people went the wrong way. That was back in chapter 1. But now he's reminding them what happened when they, the new generation, began to go the right way. And our passage this morning is part of that. This is part of what happened, says Moses, when you did actually trust God and when you followed me. I guess it's a simple enough argument, isn't it? In the past, going the wrong way led to disaster, going the right way led to success, and that then backs up what Moses is saying at this new point of decision. So now go the right way. We're going to look at this in two stages this morning. First, the main thrust of this passage, which I think is Moses using this account of the the defeat of Sion to say, as you choose the path that leads to life, do not fear the opposition. Do not fear the opposition. But then in the second stage, I want to go on and address some difficulties raised by this passage. I'll come back to those a little later, but let's begin with what I suggested is the main reason Moses is telling this, that he wants to say, do not fear the opposition. Or to explain that just a little, as you seize upon the promises of God for life and blessing, do not fear the opposition, for the Lord himself will be fighting for you. Now you may remember that from previous weeks, that the key part of the promises for the people that Moses is preaching to is the promise of land. That is, a place for them to live as the people of God in, in sight of the nations around them. But it's very clear here, isn't it, that uh, we're not just talking about any old piece of land. We're talking about a very particular piece of land. And you can see that here in Deuteronomy chapter 2 from, the, from a pattern that runs right across the chapter. Uh, so look back with me to verse 5 of chapter 2. As, uh, this is as the people travel around Mount and encounter the descendants of Esau. Moses, um, the Lord says, do not provoke them to war, for I will not give you any of their land. And we get something similar done in verse 9. Do not harass the Moabites or provoke them to war, for I will not give you any part of their land. Uh, Then again in verse 19, this is after a break of 38 years, which is to the new generation, when you come to the Ammonites, do not harass them or provoke them to war, for I will not give you possession of any land that belonging to the Ammonites. But then suddenly it changes at the beginning of our passage this morning. Verse 24. Set out now and cross the Arnon Gorge. See, I have given into your hand Zion the Amorite, king of Heshbon and his country. Begin to take possession of it and engage him in battle. It's a very striking pattern, isn't it, across the chapter. We've got no, 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 yes. Why is this? Well, the reason is that in crossing over the Arnon Gorge, the people have crossed over into the land that they have been promised, the particular land that they have been promised. It's not the main part of the land, which is across the Jordan River, but it is part of it nonetheless. They were on land they hadn't been promised, now they're on land that they have been promised. So in many ways, it's quite a moment in history, isn't it? This is the moment the people of God step into the land that they've been promised. This is, if you like, a Neil Armstrong moment. This is one small step for the people of God, one giant leap in the story of God's salvation of the world. 
But you can see the issue here. There's a, there's a problem. There's Zion, the Amorite. That's Amorite. Notice not Ammonite. Wouldn't do to get our Amorites muddled with our Ammonites. But the Amorites, uh, you may remember, are the frighteningly tall people who scared God's people off 40 years before. So it's very striking that they're confronting these people again. So that's the issue. But God's promise has been set. And what Moses does next sets an example for later generations of the people of God. This, we learn, is how to seize hold with confidence what God has promised. And I want you to notice here just how strong Moses' trust in the Lord his God is. You see, Moses believes what he's been told so strongly that they will engage Zion in battle and they will win that battle. He believes that so strongly he doesn't even feel the need to provoke a fight. Uh, You can see for yourself, he doesn't send messengers of of war, verse 26. He sends messengers of peace and asks for a safe passage, just as he's asked before. But that act of peace provokes violence. Uh, I don't know, you may be familiar with this kind of reaction from people. Sometimes when people are very stubbornly opposed to God, the thing that really winds them up, I mean really gets up their noses, is kindness. And so it is here. Phaon hears about the Lord God and the the, the peaceful overture is ignored completely. Uh, And out they go in battle. In other words, what Moses does exposes what these people are really like. It exposes a, a vicious, irrational hatred of the Lord. And so Zion and all his army come out against the Lord, representing the hatred of the whole people, but it is, of course, profoundly foolish for anyone to declare, to declare war on the Lord God. Uh, that's what they do. But as a consequence, as a whole people, they are destroyed. So we've seen the promise. We've seen Moses and the people of God seize hold of that promise. Uh, but I haven't yet shown you explicitly why Moses is telling this story, why Moses is reminding the people of this particular incident. Well, if you turn over to chapter 3, verse 21, this is what Moses says in, in, in these, are, if you like, summary verses for, for these two chapters, chapters 2 and 3 of the book. Moses says, At that time I commanded Joshua, You have seen with your own eyes all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. That is, um, Zion, the king of Heshbon, and and the king that they defeated next, that's Og, the king of Bashan. Um, by the way, if you're in the midst of choosing a biblical name for a new child, that's, that's not one I'd particularly recommend. Anyway, you've seen with your own eyes what the Lord your God has done to these two kings. And this is, the, this is the thing, isn't it? The Lord will do the same to all the kingdoms over there where you're going. And this is the application, if you like. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God himself will fight for you. In other words, if the feet of these two kings stands as concrete historical evidence that the Lord will do what he's promised to do, those crossing the Jordan with Joshua will be able to do so without fear of the opposition because the Lord their God himself will be fighting for them. Going back to that image I began with, it's a bit like being at the south exit, you're facing the flames, you're seeing the dangers, but you say to one another, we say to one another, 
we got through safely before, we can get through again. So then, in the first instance, this is an encouragement for the particular group of people poised at the edge of the land, preparing for Joshua to lead them in. But one of the very remarkable things about the book of Deuteronomy is that it has this uh, built-in expectation that it's going to prove relevant for many future generations of God's people. It's very interesting, towards the end of the book, um, Moses calls the people together and he reminds them again about this defeat of Sion and Og. It's very striking. Moses says that he's saying these things not only for the people standing with him on that day, but he says, but also I'm saying this to those who are not here today. Meaning, I think, uh, for future generations, is just to say to them too, reading this account in the book of Deuteronomy, if you too keep faithful, then this is the kind of God that you have on your side, fighting for you. Now, the details are different for us, of course. We've not been promised a particular patch of land and God hasn't called us to fight in this particular kind of way. Nevertheless, uh, we should be able to find a, a similar kind of encouragement Uh, to do what we've been called to do and to face opposition in our day. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. However, I do seriously wonder whether you yet feel encouraged by this passage. There are a number of serious difficulties here that you'll have picked up. A number of potential stumbling blocks or anxieties we might have uh, stemming from this passage. And I want to finish this morning by addressing some of those. The first anxiety is this. Anxiety about God's sovereignty. Uh, Take a look at verse 30 with me again. This is what Moses says. But Sion, king of Heshbon, refused to let us pass through. For the Lord your God had made his spirit stubborn and his heart obstinate in order to give him into your hands, as he has now done. Now, what are we to make of this? It's quite explicit, isn't it? The Lord God makes Sion's spirit stubborn and his heart obstinate. It's, uh, if you like, uh, Moses showing us a direct intervention from the Lord into the heart and decisions of an individual. If that surprises you, I need to say there are many other places in the Bible where we're also shown God hardening people like this. He does it with Pharaoh, uh, with Samson, with Saul, with false prophets in the books of 2 Samuel and 1 Kings, and most infamously of all, of course, he does it with Judas Iscariot. And it may well be that you are one of the very many people who finds that kind of intervention from God deeply troubling. The last two churches I've been involved in, this is one of the big stumbling blocks that came up time and time again. And for those people, this description of God's involvement in people's decisions clashed horribly with how they understood human freedom and human responsibility. Now, we certainly haven't got time this morning to address this issue fully and comprehensively, but um, I think I've got time to make just two observations from these verses. The first observation is that while we might find this troubling, 
it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Moses clearly didn't. But God did this. It's clearly a positive thing from his point of view. And that should warn us that perhaps what it means to be free and responsible is not quite as obvious as we might think it was. Perhaps our understanding of God is not quite as big as it should be. It's not as big as Moses' understanding of God. I want to suggest to you, if you do find this troubling, what I suggest is this. By all means, keep thinking about this, but for the moment, why not give God the benefit of the doubt? Don't let this become a stumbling block for your faith. That's the first observation. The second observation uh, on this, on God's control over Sion, is the role that it plays in the passage and in what happens. And I want you to see again what God's control enables in this passage. That it enables Moses to behave impeccably. So we've noted this already, that Moses sends messengers of peace rather than sending messengers of war. Remember he's been told there will be a battle, there will be a victory, but because he knows that God is intimately in control of the situation, behind the scenes as it were, he doesn't have to provoke a fight. He doesn't have to set fire to Sion's car or insult his wives or paint graffiti on his garage door. He doesn't have to do anything. He is free to do the right thing. He doesn't have to play politics to manipulate the right outcome. He is free to act impeccably. That's very exciting, I think, because this is our God too. So we might think across the, the different opponents that we might encounter in our Christian lives. You'll find, and you may have noticed in this series of sermons, that your church leaders will naturally, naturally think of uh, opponents of the gospel who are sadly at work within the Church of England because, as I'm sure you understand, that's a source of serious heartache for them. But the opposition is wider than that, of course. We encounter it in, in difficult or awkward neighbours, in obstructive schools, in mocking bosses at work. I heard of someone in Australia who for it was an amazing story. For 30 years endured the constant daily mocking and abuse from his boss about his faith. We encountered this kind of opposition from governments. Governments who wish to silence our outcry against 21st century invented morality. Opposition in all sorts of different areas and situations. And the temptation in, in every case is to respond to hostility with hostility, to manipulation, with manipulation, to politics, with politics. Sometimes, sadly, that's precisely what we do. But if we remember who God is, that he is this kind of God, then we need not behave that way. He is in control. He is perfectly in control. And that frees us frees us to act impeccably. So that's the first anxiety about the sovereignty of God. The second anxiety is this. Anxiety about God's justice. And even though I haven't yet drawn your attention to it explicitly, you'll have noticed this already, I suspect. So, verse 34. 
At that time, we took all his towns and completely destroyed them. Men, women, and children. We left no survivors. I guess the issue here is obvious, isn't it? It sounds like, it does sound like the ethnic cleansing that went on in the Balkans, doesn't it? It sounds like the worst kind of Islamic jihad or holy war. This sounds like, and people do make this accusation, this sounds like Moses was committing a war crime and should perhaps be standing alongside Charles Taylor at the Hague without the supermodel witness, perhaps. It's very, very hard, isn't it? And uh, I know of many, many Christians who struggle with this, and we might well cry out to God at this point. Like Abraham, when the Lord warns him about the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18, we might cry out to God, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Well, let me attempt a very brief answer to this. Uh, now, it's true that when people act violently and have acted violently in history, sometimes they, are, they do claim to be executing the judgment of God. That's certainly true of Islamic jihad, isn't it? But we have to say, according to the witness of the scriptures, generally speaking, they are not. They're just doing their own thing. Apparently the book of Deuteronomy was once used by white supremacists in South Africa to justify some of the atrocities of apartheid. It was an appalling thing, an appalling thing. And again, they were claiming to be executing the judgment of God. But the truth of the matter is, they were not. The events described here in Deuteronomy and later in the book of Joshua, however, I would say, are very different. Moses really was executing the judgment of God. 3,000 years ago, in that specific place, in those unique circumstances, that really was the judgment of God. That's very clear in this passage. Look again at verse 24, where the Lord says, I have given him into your hand. And verse 31, I have begun to deliver Sion and his country over to him. It's the Lord behind it, isn't it? It's the Lord's initiative behind this act of judgment. And although he's using the people of God on this special occasion as instruments of his judgment, it's very clearly him who judges Zion and his people. Now, I doesn't make what happened any less terrible, and I think we should still tremble at it, but I think it does help a, a little to help us understand it a bit better. We can think about this, if you like, as, uh, as the judgment that God will one day bring to the whole world brought forward in a very particular circumstance. We're told elsewhere in the Bible that the wickedness of the people in the land was very great. This is God judging that wickedness. And just as he judged wickedness in the land back then, so he will judge the wickedness of the whole world in the future. And we know that that judgment is going to be an impartial judgment. It is going to be an impartial, universal Judgment. There's going to be no appeal to ethnicity, to gender, or even to age. And although we might still tremble at the thought of it, we can begin to see that the judgment of wickedness has got to be, in the end, a good thing. 
In other words, like Abraham, we need to learn to trust God on this. Again, we give him the benefit of the doubt that he did do the right thing and he will do the right thing. But even if we put our anxieties about God's sovereignty and his justice on hold, uh, there remains one further obstacle. And this is perhaps the greatest obstacle of all. This is, thirdly and lastly, anxiety about ourselves. Over and over again in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is calling his people to follow a very demanding and challenging path. There are to be instruments of judgment in the land that God has promised, as we've seen this morning. There are to be radically obedient and faithful. And although, when we're thinking straight, we can see that that's a good path, it's the path of life, no less, we wilt and crumple before the challenge. So I try to think myself into that, that situation on the edge of the land, listening to Moses and ask, could I have done it? Could I have done what I was called to do? And I do doubt it. And I imagine my, myself thinking in that situation, how could I, how could I ever be an instrument of judgment when I'm personally so morally compromised? How could I bring the kind of judgment on others that I know that I deserve myself? Extraordinarily difficult thing, isn't it? How could I ever aspire to the standards of faithfulness that Moses sets for me and will we'll outline in much more detail um, further on in the book of Deuteronomy? Let's imagine going back to that scenario I began with, whether we go through the north door or whether we go through the south door to safety. And I might get to that south door and almost be persuaded that it's the right way to go, uh, that this it is, it is the way to safety and the other way is the way to death. But I look at the flames and I look at the figures lurking in, in the smoke and shadows and all of the dangers ahead and I just can't do it. But one of the most striking things about the book of Deuteronomy is that Moses knows that the people do not have the heart to do what he's called them to do. He knows that they're going to fail in the end anyway. And in this way, the book of Deuteronomy prepares the way for another leader. A leader greater than Moses. A leader who can take his people surely and safely to life a leader who can take on this challenge himself and complete it perfectly. A leader who can be an instrument of God's judgment but without any compromise at all. A leader who can accomplish the kind of victory we were reading about from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 a little earlier. A leader who can do everything necessary to guarantee life for his people who can prove to them that the path set for them does indeed lead to life. But not only does prove it, to be with them, alongside them, as they take it. And of course we do have such a leader in Jesus. I'm not suggesting that he takes away the challenge we face. The challenge we face is still considerable but he does radically reshape it. 
if you like, he goes ahead of us through the flames, through the opposition, through the suffering. And he's also with us as we follow. And as we seize upon his promise of life, we can listen to Moses then and not fear the opposition. For the Lord Jesus himself is fighting for us, freeing us to face that opposition impeccably, freeing us to trust him that the outcome will be just right. Let's pray.